0: It helps to be at the right place at the right time. There's an element of chance to making art. Someone gets discovered by just the right person. Everybody starts somewhere, and it helps if you're good. I'm Daniel Ralston. Today I'll be talking to director Lance Bangs. This is Videohead. Lance Bangs has been at the center of almost every major movement in the world of indie rock and comedy since the mid-1980s. He started out working with R.E.M. and directed influential videos for artists like Guided by Voices and Pavement. Later, he went on to work with Kanye West, The Ye Yeah Yez, Odd Future, Arcade Fire, and dozens of other musicians. In the comedy world, he played a vital role in the production and filming of Jackass, and he recently directed comedy specials for Chelsea Peretti, Hannibal Buress, and David Cross. Lance has always been around the things I love, or do I love them because Lance Bangs was around? I met up with him to talk about his music video work, his collaboration with Spike Jones, and his life in music, comedy, and film. Here's my chat with Lance Bangs on Videohead. Lance Banks, thank you for joining me on Videohead. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. The first real exposure that I had to like cool music in the mid-90s was like Matador Records stuff. So you have kind of been like, a Zelig-like figure in my life, and for people who like the kind of stuff that I do, your name has been popping up in my world for a long time. One of the first bands I truly loved was R.E.M., who I think are kind of an underrated band in regards to music videos. In general. I think they're an extremely important band when it comes to music videos. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with R.E.M. early in in your career?
1: Yeah, I was making personal films. I was shooting a lot on Super 8 and had a tape recorder and was just sort of documenting the places I was exploring or running around. And I would say like in the mid-1980s, I was still a teenager and I was in different parts of New Jersey, kind of near military bases, like Fort Dix, Maguire. And R.E.M. came through to play Philadelphia at, like, the Mann Music Center and most likely the Green Tour of 1988. It was the first time I ever saw someone else that had a Super 8 camera that was, like, shooting. Because it was a format that had existed for home film, you know, mostly in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. And then had been replaced by camcorders and VHS and that sort of thing by the time that, that we're talking about now in the late 80s. But it was still, like, a way to make things that were light going through film and projected on a wall that I really responded to and really loved. And that had been the format that I'd had access to. And at the time, you could get Super 8 film cartridges at most drugstores or supermarkets or pretty casual places. And the processing was always really inexpensive. It might be like two, two and a half dollars to get it developed because they were encouraging you to buy the film and then have a reason to go back to the store to drop it or pick it up. And so it was almost a weird, underwritten thing on behalf of Big B Drugs or <laughs> the supermarket to like have a reason you had to go twice a week to, to right. the place. Um, so there weren't a lot of other people that were shooting Super 8 that I was running into in my weird teenage things I was going through. And Jem Cohen was traveling with Michael Stipe at the time and doing some public service announcements and uh, kind of taking advantage of the fact that on cable TV at the time, there was a certain amount of airspace that was supposed to be dedicated to you know public service announcements mm-hmm. and social good. And so they realized if they made things about the issues that they were concerned about, they would get run on Kansas City television, you know, mm-hmm. regularly. They could have interesting filmmakers like Jim Herbert, Catherine diekman Jim McKay, Jem Cohen make cool pieces and that they would run and, and kind of catch your eye and be these striking things about environmental concerns mm-hmm. or voter registration or water safety or things like that. Um so Jem Cohen was traveling along with Michael and had a Super 8 camera and I think I probably had one on me and was shooting some stuff. I was working uh is a volunteer for uh Greenpeace, like giving out pamphlets and uh-huh. information. Um, it, they would, they had set up outside all their, their concert venues. So they kind of came over and said, hello. And we struck up a conversation and kind of exchanged addresses. And, and it was so uh, intensely really kind of struck me to, to meet someone else that was shooting underground film and, and that they were like, Open to coming over and talking and striking up a conversation and, and giving advice about where to get things processed for black and white at that time and, and all that, and then started sending him copies of the uh, the films I was making, and then he helped get me out of the place I was and, and registered to go down to the University of Georgia, where he was based, uh, mm-hmm. to go start making films in Athens and do stuff down there.
0: You sort of touch on something that that I think comes up a lot when I when I talk to directors is the idea of even in small ways, of mentorship yeah. of people who are helping you along the way. You see a guy like Jim Cohen, who, by the way, I think is coming on the show pretty oh, soon, um, which I'm very excited about. You know, he's just out with a camera. Maybe he has a little bit more experience, knows a little bit, you know, he's out there with R.E.M. Yeah. You see that, and then somebody like that sort of takes you under their wing a little bit, and you end up kind of learning as you go. So you end up in Athens, and then you have like people in REM's world like Chris Billheimer and people yeah. like that sort of getting involved in your world and, and influencing what you're doing too?
1: Yeah. I, I should probably clarify like it was it was more Michael and then Chris Billheimer and artists that worked with Michael that were the ones that helped me get down mm-hmm. to Athens and all that. Jen was just like the first person I saw that was a filmmaker that gotcha you know was mm-hmm. was having a conversation and, and supportive and great and all that. So Michael Stipe from REM and, and Chris Billheimer, an artist that he was, you know, working with at the time and still works with, uh, helped get me set up to go down to Athens, Georgia and find a place to crash and Mm -hmm. sort of would give me small grants of access to film stock through a sort of a nonprofit that Michael and Jim McKay were running at the time uh, called C-100 Film Corps. And so I would continue to shoot Super 8. And there's also a photographer and painter that had mentored Michael while he was in art school there named James Herbert, who's an amazing filmmaker who studied under Stan Brakhage. And so I moved into Jim Herbert's house and learned a lot from him. There's no, There was no real film program. So I didn't ever major in film or mm. learn the technical side of three-point lighting or that side of things or narrative script writing or any of those more traditional things, but just took art classes uh, with Jim Herbert and once a year would do this sort of like long program of, of uh, getting super eight cameras into the hands of other musicians and, and mm. poets and painters and people that are running around Athens and then making and projecting uh, personal films. And I started working as a projectionist as well. So there was a bar called The Globe that would screen Brisson films on 60 millimeter prints. And there was a kind of a student union that that was doing a great job. The people that were programming it was like Scott Tobias, who went on to become you know, a great film writer and critic. Uh, there was a guy named Noel Murray that was like working out at the mall. At sure, the, so are it, like, yeah. Yeah, it was essentially like <laughs> the great writers of, of film throughout the late 90s and, and 2000s up to today were the other people that were in these, you know, concession booths or projection booths at these, these theaters with me. Um, and so learn much more about film history. Cause again, I wasn't in a program where there was a, an academic, like right. NYU film school kind of thing, but just from Scott Tobias's taste and what he was bringing and, and aware of as it was emerging, like he was tracking what stuff was playing at festivals and getting print sent to us to go run for a week at a time and just dealing with film physically and, and learning what you could do with like painting or scratching it or sending light through it in different ways. Uh, with the access to stuff in the booth was really important. I don't know. It was a kind of a really great time to be in that particular area with the combination of musicians and writers and, and filmmakers that were floating around.
0: And, you know, so you have access to film and you're making, you know, film stock and you're yeah. making Super 8 16mm stuff. Is that also the kind of stuff that you're interested in, or were there things that you wanted to make that felt like beyond the reach? like do you feel like that sort of was dictated
1: by the available resources It's a weird thing for me like I wasn't someone that was trying to make narrative feature mm-hmm. Adam Sandler comedy kind of films or uh, scripted films at that time i I really was someone that that felt like I was surprised I was still alive and running around making stuff that felt personal or coming from an expressive place to me and that was usually visuals with a voiceover over the top of them or pieces of music and then bands that were coming through Athens Georgia which was like a really fertile music scene at the time would see that because we were projecting it at the nightclubs like the 40 watt club or the downstairs Mm -hmm. that bands would be in on their night off or whatever uh, that it turned into things like if Dinosaur Jr. came through with My Bloody Valentine or whatever combination and they happened to go see the stuff I was projecting and then they would ask if I'd want to project things behind them while they played or go on tour and shoot some footage right. or it kind of more grew out of that. And that those, uh, ways of making things were what I did because that was what came up rather than like, here's my screenplay. I wrote about three guys in their twenties. Like, uh, you know, that was never something that I was, uh, angling for.
0: But I love that even, is that, um, is that five, eight video, the first music video that, that you might did?
1: Be one, yeah. I did some smaller ones in New Jersey, sort of in the underground music scene there for, for bands that are floating around uh, in that time period. But that one for five, eight might be one of the first like, you know, quote unquote music video type things where there was a song and
0: yeah. But I like that, you know, you're, a, you're, a, I feel like a funny guy and you spend a lot of time with funny people. Like even that video has like humor and like the, the crowd is labeled fans yeah. and the band is labeled band.
1: I don't know like, if that's humor or failed pretension. <laughs> like it, it could well, be that. <laughs> that's actually
0: what I was going to say is that you're talking about, especially, you know, when you're talking about like, uh, Stan Brackage and stuff yeah. like that you're talking about some like pretty like arty art stuff yeah. you know there there isn't a lot of humor in that it's pretty serious stuff yeah. and then but you have some and you're also talking about bands you know 90s indie bands who yeah. are very a lot of them are very, very serious. serious yeah Um, and I assume that a lot of the videos that you've made early, which are like, you know, out on tour with a band or for a live performance stems from a band being a little bit self-conscious about maybe like acting or
1: being in a video. Definitely at the time there was an instinct that like none of us wanted to go. I didn't want to direct someone to do a lit lip sync type of video where there was a hair and makeup department. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to try and talk someone like Stephen Malkmus into that being a good idea. I didn't think it was a good idea. Yeah. Like you mentioned, a lot of the earlier things were more like portraiture, documentary poetic visuals of traveling or touring or live performance.
0: But then you have like the game of pricks video that you did for guided by voices where it's clear that you're starting to create characters though. Because And Bob's a rock star. Bob Pollard is like one of the great rock stars of all time. And that video, he certainly looks like one. And you're sort of projecting. Yeah, I'm like
1: definitely like you know backlighting him. And that's that's film that is uh, it's a print of film. So it's it's not a negative like what gets scanned for most like music videos being done at the time. We've got latitude to change the look of it. It's an actual like physical positive print, and then running that through uh, an analytic projector, which is a, a thing that sports teams would use to playback like a college football thing in slow motion and not burn the film yeah but it keeps it bright without like you know burning the film in the frame as you go frame by frame through it um and then re-photographing that to kind of give it that slow effect of like re frames that it has
0: you talk about not coming from like the nyu film school technical side do you feel like you guys were doing those sorts of things for experimental reasons and and kind of because
1: nobody told you you couldn't do those things too I think it was experimental reasons, and it was also that I found the things that were coming out of, like, wealthy kids going to film school kind of insufferable. Like, I didn't relate to the concerns of the type of thing that they were making, like, bad student films was something that I loathed.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny because people like that would want nothing more than the acceptance of like the coolest bands possible, <laughs> and then yeah, because I, I didn't go to college, I didn't yeah. even ma- I didn't even hold a camera until I was like thirty two. Yeah. I feel like there's definitely a sense when I started making videos that I was just like I don't really know what I'm doing, but I feel like I have something original to say. Yeah, and you sort of. Yeah. Um. But in, in the idea of kind of creating iconic characters from something that's not narrative, you know, I mean, you don't have you can't do much better than like Michael Stipe. Yeah. I mean, and the videos that you directed for REM in those videos, he, he has a very specific look. And I feel like um, even the, the other members of the band, you're sort of defining who they are in the course of the video while yeah. having this sort of focus on one particular person. Does that stuff ever get tricky when you're making a video for somebody you've had, for an artist who you've had a, a longer kind of relationship with?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because there certainly are people that go through different phases of their own creative evolution and how they want to play around in persona or character or present themselves at different times. And so you may have something in mind for what you think works great because you love the previous record. And then they're in a mode of like, no, 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 I'm wearing eye makeup and these kind of, you know, mm-hmm. the, I've been really looking at Buster Keaton films and I want to do this like blank expression thing and see if that translates or things like that that are just in the mind of these uh, these people you're working with right. at different points. And do you
0: feel like getting to know the people that you're working with and and where they're coming from, is that something you feel like you can override as the director?
1: Yeah, there's certainly, you know, I, I don't want to feel like I'm purporting to have like steered anyone away from what they were trying to do, but you do have a lot of uh, ability. Let, let's make it like a different example of someone else that, sure. that there are people that like are not super visually aware of like what's charismatic about them mm-hmm. and that you can sort of choose how you're shooting them and and what you're setting around them and then how you're editing it to kind of present like a more mysterious or intriguing or, or intense version of, of someone that might just be, hey, what's up, dude? And, you know, yeah. well, in that, the van.
0: The new slang video that you did for the Shins is a little yeah. bit like that. Yeah. And also, I love that video, too, because there's sort of these images from other, like, classic indie rock things yeah. in it. There's, like, the Cat Power record cover sort yeah. of shot. I love that um that's a band who, I mean, the first time you hear that band, you're like, first of all, it's pretty timeless sounding music. yeah. And also they were part of a lineage of like great indie rock bands, I feel yeah. like in a row. And that video certainly places them in that context as well. While obviously not having a, like a Michael Stipe up at the front of the thing, sure. too.
1: Yeah, that's a very deliberate thing. So the, one of the things that was going on during that time period is that I was, uh, you know, kind of floating around in the music underground or the sort of independent scene and that labels would send copies of demos or records that they were going to put out and sort of see what you thought or what you're responding to mostly on a social level of like, Hey, we're excited about this band. Like they're going to come through Portland. You should go check them out. Not just Mm -hmm. straight up. Like you should do a music video for this. And then those early tapes that, uh, I think maybe Isaac Brock might've brought the shin stuff to sub pop. Am I, maybe I've got that wrong. Mm
0: -hmm. I feel like that might be, it
1: might be true that, uh, I feel like in that world that like, people at sub pop were excited about the stuff that was coming out of Albuquerque that, that James was doing under that new name under the shins after flake music. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me. And I connected with that record and particularly that song, new slang on that first batch of tapes. And so I like the idea of like going on these adventures and traveling and seeing the world and hitting different areas and checking out regional scenes. And so it was really, I just wanted to go to Albuquerque and see what was going on there and, and, learn the local weird underground culture and see the record stores and see what bands were active there. There There's like maybe Scared of Chaka might've been around Mm -hmm. that time. So I went to go meet up with them and then realized pretty quickly that James was the real sort of vision or songwriter that was driving that and that other people were like, I'm mostly into my hot air balloons. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. it it wasn't necessarily always going to be that combination of people, but that this was someone that was making these, like you mentioned, like timeless feeling songs that also felt like they could have been you know, deep on side two of a meat puppets record or, and so I wanted to shoot something that called attention to that band and that song. And then in a, hopefully not too pretentious way, put them in the context of these other independent records that I'd loved knowing that this was like a new weird thing coming out on Sub pop that Uh may or may not get noticed or or catch any attention at the time. Mm. And so we shot that uh, mostly in Albuquerque, although James came out to Portland to visit and we shot the cat power thing uh, at a house I was living in at the time in Portland, just because it had the right kind of tree to look like the cover moon pics. And kind of
0: as, like, sort of at this era, some of the videos you're doing are for smaller bands, obviously, bands who come to you through, like, a guy you know at Sub Pop yeah. or whatever. But then there's also, like, bigger videos, like you do a Green Day video yeah. around that time, too. So, do, do you sort of, did you sort of have a sense that you had two careers at the same time?
1: Oh, definitely. Like, and And really, like, The main thing I was doing was making personal films that haven't really been seen by larger groups other than people in in these small rooms that I was projecting them in. That was mostly what I did and how I thought of myself and what my work was and what my life was about. And then separate from that to kind of like keep getting film stock or learn new editors or learn new techniques, I would take these jobs doing music videos. It wasn't like I ever set out to be a music video director. And then once that started to become less of a, a world of possibilities and DVDs existed, I became like a producer of DVDs and figured out weird ways to make those more interesting. And then when that went away, I became someone that made short film portrait document, you know, sort of just as a way to keep making personal films about the things I'm really drawn to and the things I want to archive, I would make whatever other kind of projects were being offered or, um, coming up at the time.
0: And I assume the fact that, um, labels start to pay a little bit less for music videos. starts to change that dynamic a little bit too. Right.
1: Yeah. And not that, you know, it certainly like it makes sense. And like it, it was ridiculous when they were spending $300,000 on music videos. Like there's no reason that they should have cost that. And once people learn how to shoot and edit and color correct things with, with their laptops, you mm-hmm. know, there was less of a reason for that to exist. Um, I don't miss that era. Like I, you know, I think it's better for people that everyone can make a video for, no money or a few thousand dollars and express their band and something that a young filmmaker makes that works with a band that they love rather than it being something that had that barrier of entry that was uh, so high. But I get, it was fun to kind of live through that era. Like I was making personal stuff. And then um, at the time Spike Jones was at a a music video production company called Satellite that was an offshoot of Propaganda, the larger like, you know, David Pincher mm-hmm. type of place. And so he started bringing me out from Athens, Georgia to Los Angeles to get repped by that world and uh write treatments and direct videos through that fun like weird los angeles new york london uh era of the music video
0: <laughs> and we sort of touched on the mentorship
1: thing yeah. certainly that
0: spike jones has been somebody in, in that role for you i mean obviously you've yeah. worked with them forever um do you when you are working you know in your in your obviously in your credits you have lots of videos that you've directed and then you have a lot of videos that you've also worked on yeah how do you approach working on a video where you're, like, say, second AD or working camera? Um, do you go in kind of thinking I'm in service of the greater thing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Like, I, I make personal work all the time, and that's the stuff that that I have the most investment in or you know control over. And then I love the adventure of working with other people and just making stuff. And so I'll go DP something for Michelle Gondry or, or Spike or whatever if they ask, or go shoot something or just be a camera operator if it's a fun project and we'll do whatever weird thing comes up just to kind of like jump in and, and help collaborate on something and watch something get made or contribute to it. I just love that whole process.
0: And then at the same time, you're still working on sort of your A yeah, story is exactly. like your personal stuff. Yeah. And wh- when you are showing those things, how intimate are you keeping the people you show it to? Is it, is it something that's you keep close to the best? It's
1: fairly close to the vest. Yeah. yeah. I think that like when I'm older, when I'm dead or about to die, that there'll be this blood of these like long, Future film things that'll come out and surprise people.
0: Um, one of the things I, I'm sure you have documented from where you were at the time is like I assume you have Neutral Milk Hotel footage yeah. floating around. Is that is that something you guys ever talk about doing things? Yeah, with?
1: quite a bit. Like I, you know, uh, there was a period of time we I was roommates with Jeff Mangum and a lot of the rest of the band in Athens, Georgia after I moved out of Jim Herbert's place, and then after that Chris Bilheimer and Dan Doni who and I lived in a what was like Jim Herbert's painting studio in these old classrooms for a long time. And we would put on shows there a little bit and then moved out of there and into Jeff's house sort of uh, during the tail end of that first iteration of Nutramilk hotel and had shot all the footage of him, you know, sort of the process of putting together the songs he's writing for in the airplane over the sea and then playing them live for the first time and touring with them and uh, quite a bit of material. And then when he, you know, kind of, became less public, uh, there would be periods of time that he would kind of take off and then call or, or email or write and have an idea for a way to get that footage out into the world. And it was usually attached to some cause that he was concerned about or some social good that he thought he could do, whether would be a group of orphans in a Romanian situation that we thought we could raise some funds for if we put out just only solo performances from this era of this batch of songs cut together. And we would start like working on that and be like, okay, no full band performances of unreleased songs from these tours. Okay, no, you know, it would (laughs) kind of like go through different versions. we would talk to Merge about like, okay, what if it's audio only? What if it's a record? What if it's a DVD? What if it's, you know, these different things and then, you know, time would pass and then it would sort of the trail would go cold and then he would call from somewhere else and be like, okay, for this cause, we're going to do this. So, there are a lot of different ways that we cut footage together or looked at what to do with it. And then usually in the end we would decide not that it wasn't really right or it wasn't the right time. And that Mm -hmm. there were other ways just to donate directly to those causes and, and not release something. Um, So other than the sort of the, the live at Jittery Joe's thing that we put out uh, as a way of getting those songs out into the world, um, a lot of the rest of it, I guess he put one of the songs on the, uh, the box set that he did, Mm -hmm. the little birds performance. Um, But otherwise, a lot of that is just still in my archives and in my vault.
0: I saw him do that show where he played with Guy from Fugazi for the strike debt benefit. And it was really an incredible experience. And I feel like I remember watching people putting up clips of that on YouTube and having like a million views (laughs) and the whole crowd just singing along to every word that he said, especially those first solo shows that he did too. Um, I'm you know, you are documenting kind of everything and everybody. And certainly when you have a camera trained on Jeff Mangum and there's five people in the room, you can't know that someday you're going to look at a video that a million people watch and everyone in the room is screaming along to the same song.
1: I was pretty sure of that, to be honest. (laughs) I, I like part of what compelled me so much to like go film everything with him was that I genuinely felt from early on that there's a huge significance to this. And this is sort of the Closest to a contemporary Van Morrison or John Lennon at their best, mm-hmm. uh, visionary who's channeling something and and putting the work in and and you know really focusing his his mind on making this come through him and that uh, it felt more important to go shoot that than the other bands that were running around Athens. You know what I mean? Like it, mm-hmm. there was more of a fixation on like this stuff is really significant and there will be eventually people will want to see this or hear it.
0: It sort of seems like as your career sort of builds up. And the other thing is that a lot of these artists start to get bigger too. I mean, yeah, like you know, you did a couple of arcade fire videos who, um, you know, go on to be one of the biggest bands of the last yeah. you know, fifteen years. As sort of the videos get a little bit bigger and then that sort of kind of drops a little bit, you start doing stuff with like the jackass people yeah. and it's almost like reverse engineered where it goes back to being super simple and it's, you know, a group of people in a room having fun or doing a thing that they're just documenting on a camera and then you're sort of back at square one, but now you're you're kind of in a, a, a mentorship role to yeah. these younger people. Do you feel like what you learned from the people
1: who helped you informed that a lot Unfortunately, no. I feel like the things that I learned from the people that I studied under help my personal work and the sort of code of how I operate or how I deal with people Mm -hmm. or treat them or or have respect for people on a social level. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's more like the life experiences I went through are the things that are more practical for the people that I'm working with now. Uh, Like there's no one I'm mentoring that's like of a Jem Cohen aesthetic, unfortunately, Uh and I wish that there was whereas i do end up like going and and teaching some of the people around like a loiter squad set how to shoot kinetic action of like right. rambunctious charismatic people hmm. because i don't know i feel like in some ways you might be selling yourself <laughs> short
0: a little bit there only because i was thinking about the personalities in something like jackass yeah. or even in like work, working with odd future so the way that those characters get defined a lot of it is visual and certainly like this is going to sound a little bit strange, but I feel like Jackass normalized men interacting together in a certain way. Yeah. That was that that comes from the world that you come from in a lot sure. of ways, where th- things aren't judged in the same way. And that actually was very important culturally. And I think you see a lot of that now, too. Yeah. I
1: don't want to overstate my steering of that. Like, there's an the aesthetic that was coming from Jeff Tremaine and Johnny Knoxville and Spike and Dmitry Ilyaskovich, that they'd already sort of gotten going through the Big Brother videos and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then when I got brought in, it was mostly through Spike. And I, I think that there was a sense on some of the larger jackass shoots that, like, it would be safer and better and more interesting on a personal level to throw Lance in there to get footage with Brad Pitt while he's getting ready, or the bigger stunts where they're doing money for makeup or whatever, to like have someone else there that's getting the sort of the more intimate documentary side of things and the preparation and then how it plays out. And then when they were doing the feature film, there was a sense of like, is this going to be a movie or like, you know, can you sit and watch 90 minutes of these clips in a row or are people just going to get exhausted or fatigued after 12 minutes and not want to sit through the rest if there's no narrative structure. And so uh, my sort of uh, mission on that was to humanize people and spend time with them and, and show the kind of like anxiety or fear before they do a bit or the process of putting things together. And then ended up like shooting a lot of the actual like, stunt highlights as well just because I was in the right spot or got the right angle of things or kept shooting mm-hmm. and didn't shake my hands when things got nervous or whatever uh-huh. um, but I like certainly like the the core of a lot of what was going on there and the comfort around male camaraderie was something that was part of Jeff Tremaine and, and Dimitri and Knoxville himself and I was you know so there was I guess I just don't want to overstate it but like we certainly were like aware of the fact that like this is funny and exciting and edgy on some level for Bam to be undressed and coming in the room and nude and we're all in the elevator together. And it's, you know, yeah. there's a weird element of of a charge in the air to that and that it was making other people uncomfortable in, in the viewership and that the sort of what we're imagining of the more locker room type of dynamic of dudes that might watch us who might be like, whoa, you know, yeah. freaked out by that it was fun to push those buttons or like normalize it or make it more comfortable. And a lot of it's soundtracked by SST bands and, you know, hybrid moments by the misfits or Corona by the minute men and people that kind of came out of that big boys, SST, skate punk type of background who were comfortable in homo-friendly situations and and like trying to make that discomfort among people that weren't there yet become more comfortable or get a laugh out of like the weird tension that caused in them. And then I do think that it did, like you might've alluded to, like help to break down some of those fears.
0: Yeah, which you certainly then also see in like the Odd Future yeah, world too, yeah. like where it's like there are lots of things that happen in that end of the rap world that are like there are other ends of that spectrum where Correct. it would never be okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right?
0: And that like things like that are always um, yeah. a positive, Yeah, that was
1: always important to me from the world I came out of and the sort of the queer culture and, and underground that I was in, that not breaking my aesthetic to accommodate like a more jockey thing right. was, uh, was important.
0: And having people like Spike or, you know, even the camp of Merge Records and, you know, having yeah. these outposts of um, organizational sort of um, the ability to make things, you know, people who have money to make things, who are, who are funding the right kind of things and, and getting things going really kind of holds it all together. This is sort of something I've realized recently um, that, you know, anything you want to describe as like punk or whatever is really just held by together by a group of people who actually care. Yeah. You know? And um, I feel like you are definitely one of those people. And you sort of had us, you know, you notice a swing back. I've just sort of noticed in the past couple of years, you've directed a couple of, like smaller music videos again, too. Yeah. Right? Like, like for Screaming Females.
1: And yeah. People. Again, like bands that I connect with or have a, a, a real fondness for social connection to, I make time to take the resources that I've acquired from doing TV shows and movies and, and take that equipment and go make things that I want to make with people I want to collaborate with. And did a bunch of work with screaming Females uh, in the past couple of years. They're going to play in LA tonight, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just did a video. There's a friend from Athens, Georgia, Patterson Hood. There's a band called Drive-By Truckers. We just are finishing a video right now that Mike Quinn, who ran No Quarter Records and was like a great underground figure, he's at the label now. And you know, it just made sense to kind of work with those guys and make a music video. Doing some stuff with Holy Sons, which is uh, Amos, who's a great... Drummer and musician uh, in all kinds of different forms. He has a personal project called Holy Sons, I'm about to do a video for. So there's been a, a lot of small things like that that I've been interested in uh, in making again recently in the music video world.
0: Was it fun to come back to it and see how much easier it is to get stuff made? Yeah,
1: now? it was. And you know the fact that you can have like a iPhone or a DSLR and go make videos. You, you can shoot footage that that works and, and capture someone's persona or tells a story and and cut it together without that sort of barrier to entry that that would have existed in the mid to late nineties when it would have required lighting department and hair and makeup and all that world.
0: Um, and then I just have two things I wanted to ask you about Yeah, that's sort of the, in addition to the bulk of the interview, the first is the director's series yeah. label, which you've been involved with. Um, I know that there was talk of doing more of those. Is that something that's still being discussed?
1: No one's asked me in a little bit. Um, there's, there's so much work that spike in particular has done since that time. That's interesting that, compiling his short films and, and later music videos and assembling all the sort of stuff we shot on set or documentary elements that were put together at the same time would be interesting. But I just don't know what format you can most easily watch that now. Like mm-hmm. the the DVD really was the right way to kind of like go through weird hidden menus and play it again with a different audio track on it or a different music mix on it. And I don't know that there's a good route to that other than some really elaborate app maybe. Interesting.
0: I know for me personally, we're such huge collections. Yeah. Yeah. Like the- you know, Spikes collection and uh, Chris Cunningham and people like that, that that work, you know, I feel like that end of music videos has changed a little bit. Like the iconic video director has, has shifted a little bit. I mean, uh, our mutual friend, Tom, Tom Sharpling is somebody who's made a bunch of videos that people really know and would be a great candidate for something like that too. Uh, But I, I just was curious because it comes up a lot. And um, I had even seen like Jonas Aukerlund who I've had on the show. I've seen his name mentioned. Yeah. We were talking
1: about trying to do one with him. I think that, you know, I don't know that the economics of it work because you've got to license all these major label songs and music videos and deal with the publishing and the clearance of all the song rights and everything. And as you move into different eras when there's like samples and a million songwriters on a good track, like you're dealing with chasing, you know, chasing all that down and getting the, the rights and clearances that it sort of became prohibitive to to do it um, as easily or effectively compared to how many people were buying DVDs. And then the last thing is just, one of the
0: things that comes up um, that I see like when you know, when I looking at your bio and everything, is shooting um like you've Rolling Stones credits and yeah. and, and Aerosmith credits. It, yeah. You shot like stuff for them to show on stage. Yeah. What is that process like? Um is it just did it stem out of like making road documentary stuff?
1: I you know, there's a weird world of that where those elder statesmen Yeah, I know nothing about that
0: world at all. Where they
1: keep an eye on what's going on culturally, and they'll see you popping up doing weird things, and they'll kind of feel you out to write a treatment for a music video. And then they'll go with the person that does the usual half a million dollar Rolling Stones videos in the end right. anyway. Um, but you know, there were different points where I got approached by those bands. And then sometimes they would just say, like, look, we like what you do. We're going to do a tour where we're going to play a chunk of Exile on Main Street, and then a different night we're going to play a chunk of Some Girls. A different I we're gonna do a chunk of, you know, Baker's Banquet or whatever. Why don't you make films that, that relate to those records to project behind us and then we'll run those on screens. And so I would go shoot a bunch of black and white super eight film of people that look like they could be in the photos in Exon <laughs> Main Street, uh, and cut it together to rocks off or something for that. And then they would project it behind them on that tour when they were doing those things. That sounds like a great job. Yeah. And then similarly, you know, like someone will work with get hired to work for Aerosmith or Kiss that worked doing a similar projection thing for the Rolling Stones and and they'll be like hey help I'm desperate you know we uh-huh. need something cool to run uh-huh. for Aerosmith like what can you make and then what works for them is more like some of the guys from Jackass like dressed up like classic Hesher rocker dudes right you know taking a guitar equipment and, and skating on it or putting wheels on it and bombing hills and and wrecking on amplifiers
0: cool awesome well yeah. Lance thank you so much for joining me yeah I appreciate it sure thanks, thanks. Thank you to director Lance Bangs for chatting with me this week. I'm Daniel Ralston at Daniel Ralston on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to this show and give us a rating on iTunes. It just takes a moment and it helps a lot. You've been listening to Videohead on the MTV Podcast Network. This episode of Videohead was produced by Michael Kitano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovich, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network. With additional engineering by Little Everywhere and Joe Wong. You can subscribe to this and all of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.